You know, Rachel, one thing that I see in my practice that is equally frustrating for both practitioners and patients is some of the limitations that we have when it comes to vaginal dryness and painful sex. And I don't think there's a population that really, really uh, hits this home uh, better than the uh, breast cancer population because they are often thrusted into an instantaneous menopause with sudden vaginal dryness, which is really different than the gradual steps that natural menopause provides. Uh, I love talking to Holly to hear that this population of people just struck such a chord with her and she knew that was the unmet need she wanted to uh, really work on. And what's really cool is when Holly started this company, you know, she's a young woman. She hadn't yet started her family. You know, she's dealing often with patients who have suffered something or they're they cancer survivors and they um, are going through menopause. And it, how does that work, by the way? If you're immediately, this is really not for posting, but if you're immediately thrust into menopause, isn't there also some deterioration in your hormone level after that? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. through natural menopause, the transition is that, you know, the estrogen secretion from your ovaries is going to be a little bit volatile with peaks and valleys, and eventually it will diminish to little to none. Uh, but with many, many uh, cancer patients, the treatment occurs when menopause has not started yet, or maybe early in the perimenopausal transition. And so rather than having this gradual volatility of estrogen, you are just from one day to the next uh, forced into an automatic menopause with literally every molecule of estrogen being sucked out of your body, whether that's surgical or medical. One of the things that I think is so important, you know, we talk about menopause a lot, but it's in the context of a much bigger discussion, which is enjoyment and pleasure. Uh, and that's not the only thing we're talking about. You know, we had fun on this uh, talking to Holly because every time you get to say the word vagina on this podcast, we get excited. We feel like we've been liberated. Um, but that we're talking about not just people who suffered with a serious illness, although that is the first, you know, that the lowest hanging fruit of people who would really benefit from this, but that we're not talking about fixing something. We're talking about hopefully creating better experiences that menopausal people or cancer survivors used to have. And it might just be getting back to their baseline. It might be getting back to better than before. But the conversation is much more important now and much more nuanced, which is really exciting to see. Well, you know what we always say, sexual health and general health go hand in hand. So let's talk to Holly. Welcome to the Business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so excited to have our guest today, Holly Rockweiler, who's the founder and CEO of Medora. Welcome. It's great to see you. 
Hi, thanks for having me. I always love talking to you. Every time I see you and speak to you, I learn something. But start with the story of Medora and in what context did you come up with the idea for the business and what it is? Sure. Well, I have to say it's mutual, to be honest. So thanks for having me. Um, so let's see. So Medora started as a spin out of the Stanford Biodesign Program, which is a program that's basically applying design thinking to medical technology innovation. And so um, folks come to that program, like myself, for example, I came out of, uh, about, well, my training's in biomedical engineering. I was working at Boston Scientific. So coming out of industry, there's also physicians who come into the program. You are put on a team and then you're given a focus area and then really taught a process for developing new solutions. But it really starts with unmet needs. And that is, like from an engineer's perspective, really exciting. <laughs> we got to go into Stanford Hospital for the first month or so of the program and just shadow physicians and meet patients and other healthcare providers and talk to them about what problems they're facing. And that is the foundation for Medora. So in that process, we found, as you can imagine, lots of problems that we would want to tackle as a team. Um, and Medora's unmet need was really driven by meeting women, specifically breast cancer survivors who had this problem of vaginal dryness and were feeling really frustrated because they were caught between um, really having no good options and their physicians acknowledging that and just feeling like the healthcare system was kind of leaving them behind. Um, and so as we started to pull that thread, as the process taught us and interview more women, we found it wasn't just breast cancer survivors. I mean, those that group of patients is specifically contraindicated or not allowed to use the gold standard treatment, which is hormone replacement therapy. But as we kind of pulled that thread, we found there were so many other women that we talked to who didn't have a cancer history, but felt uncomfortable for you know a variety of reasons using hormones. And they too felt like they were being left behind. So that was the real lightest was, you know, really meeting those patients and hearing directly from them how much, you know, they didn't really have a voice. And so I think that was really exciting to us. And by the way, you know, credit to the program, that was one of like hundreds of problems that we uncovered. And then the program we spent the next year in at Stanford, really filtering down that list and figuring out what the right problem for us to work on was, which we ended up spinning out into Medora. Terrific. Well, I, I consider Alyssa, um, a global menopause whisper. So you've covered so many topics. You talked about hormones. You've talked about concern about hormones, cancer. Alyssa, break it down so you know we can understand. We've had this conversation many times about um, the fear, the fear mongering around hormones. But there are patients who are very well suited to hormone replacement, and then those who are not. And then those who just don't like the idea. So talk a little bit about how you do that assessment when patients come into your office. Yes, of course. So first, uh, what an unmet need you are tackling, because I see this in practice day in and day out. And, you know, the nuances with the breast cancer patient is that more and more we're seeing them at a really young age. So they are literally thrown into an instant menopause with the treatments that are provided to them to literally suck every molecule of estrogen out of their body in an effort to cure and prevent any recurrence of cancer. So that's sort of the baseline. This is as opposed to your standard 
uh, menopausal person who is gradually going to note a diminishment of estrogen because the ovaries stop producing so much, but it's gradual so that the vaginal symptoms may come kind of slowly and they can be addressed at kind of an earlier stage. So I think that sort of sets the groundwork uh, for uh, what you're trying to do. At this point, you know, there is a little bit of a difference between, you know, menopause replace hormone replacement therapy and minimally absorbed vaginal estrogen, which in some cases, and kind of as a last resort, if nothing else is working, can be used in this population. But, you know, believe me, it is never a first choice for clinicians because it's a little scary. Um, and, you know, patients have been kind of, you know, po- poised to believe that this could be a real detriment to their uh, recovery and future. So it's not really the first line at all. I'm, I'm curious for both of you, you know, you're in the process of developing the product, uh, Holly and, and Alyssa, you're seeing patients. Is there some confluence of factors you're seeing that there's now this groundswell of people looking for non-hormonal options for birth control and non-hormonal options for menopause. What was sort of the turning point? You know, forget that people were terrified for years. Now there's a group of people, obviously, who understand that they can use hormones. But what has been sort of creating this gold rush around non-hormonal solutions? You want to go first? You want me to go first? Oh, go for it, Holly. Okay, I was going to say, well, I really appreciate the comments that you made as well. And I think also talking about menopausal person, I think that's something I still catch myself. I love that you said that. I think that's something, you know, Adora, we're about vaginas, whoever the owner is. And so we're, you know, we do not want to be um, excluding anyone. And I think, you know, women's health and tech are kind of more popular terms now. But the minute it's in, it's like the minute it's out. It's like suddenly not as inclusive we want it to be. So thank you for saying that. And I also agree that it is a nuanced conversation around hormones. And what we found was that patients were feeling ill-equipped to actually make the decision themselves. And we're wanting to rely on their healthcare provider who good providers like you are giving them this information. And it's just, it's just a lot. Um, so in terms of the ground law, I think, to be honest, you know, we started the company eight years ago and people were talking to us about wanting non-hormonal options, even if, you know, they were perfectly cleared to use hormones for whatever reason, like I was mentioning. So I think that the groundswell, frankly, is just people feeling comfortable speaking up because I think that, you know, for instance, in the contraception world, like the Paragard IUD without hormones has been around, I don't even know how long, for years. And so there's a lot of, I think, due to this public perception of hormones or the fact that it's a nuanced conversation, some people are just like, I don't want to deal with it. And thankfully, this you know, these topics are now being discussed more. I think that's part of it, but I'd be curious um, what your perspective is being in practice and what you're seeing. Yeah, well, I think that the comfort level uh, around speaking about vaginal dryness, using the word vagina, talking about painful sex is much more acceptable uh, than it once was. And, you know, I can see that spanning the years of my career where uh, you know, at the beginning of my career, we never talked about that, you know, and it was the rare person who brought up that they were having, you know, trouble in the bedroom, if you will. So I, I think the conversation around this has just grown so much. And, and that's uh, part of the success. The other thing is that, you know, moisturizers and lubricants have been around forever. Uh, let's just talk about lubricants because lubricants are over the counter. There, there's loads of different varieties, brands, preferences, and whatnot. And, you know, 
Some people just consider this for pleasure. Others consider this to mitigate pain. And really, it serves dual purpose. So I think that's something that needs to be considered. Um, but I'd like to hear more about your device because, you know, there is a lot of snake oil out there in regard to other or potential devices, other possible uh, remedies for this issue. Uh, so why don't you tell us the, about the nuances of, uh, of the device you're working on? Sure. Yeah. So in answer to, you know, this conversation about these needs, um, that we heard, we said, well, there has to be a better way to treat this. And to your point, you know, lubricants, moisturizers, the over-the-counter category of stuff, it's been exciting to see that growing as well in the last 10 years in terms of better ingredients, better products, better marketing, frankly, to, you know, really our target demographic. But that's really good for first-line therapy, and that's where most people should should start. But if they need something more, we said, okay, what other options could be available to patients that, you know, is there something we could develop that would do what estrogen does without, you know, that perceived risk and some of the real risks? And so we did uh, a bunch of research and determined one of the key aspects to vaginal lubrication is actually vaginal blood flow. So we said, well, there's a lot of ways in metal, medical devices and, and medical technology to increase blood flow in the body. But again, credit to the Stanford program. Through our conversations with women, we'd kind of developed this criteria in terms of what women were looking for. We didn't have a solution in mind when we interviewed them, but we just, just kind of, again, using that design thinking approach, pointed questions about what they would be looking for. So we had this nice kind of criteria and we knew that women wanted something in the home, non-invasive, that they could control themselves. And so that allowed us to really gear our brainstorming towards solutions like that and what we've settled on and what we've spent the last eight years and are continuing to work on. Developing is a home use ultrasound device that can be administered completely from outside the body and allows a rekindling of sorts of the body's natural lubricating pathways. So the device, like I said, it uses ultrasound and it's placed right at the opening of the vaginal canal. So importantly, it doesn't go inside. Again, that came from these interviews we had with patients. You know, some of them have really friable or delicate tissue, and the thought of inserting anything could be really painful for them. So this was our, you know, way to achieve what we want to achieve, you know, sort of at a distance outside the body. And the ultrasound waves, when engaged, then increase the body's, again, natural lubricating pathway, which is the vaginal blood flow. So that was the idea on paper. And then we've spent several <laughs> years and um, grants and investor funding to develop the clinical evidence to back that up. So you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of snake oil out there. I think that has been the case. I think I've seen a lot more folks being committed to be real transparency and development and clinical evidence. It's not cheap to get clinical evidence, but our thesis is that it will really pay off. It's a very strong investment because that's the thing we also learned and probably all listeners of your podcast are well aware that this is a very savvy consumer segment, meaning they want to do a lot of research. And so to my point before, they don't want to be overwhelmed by medical literature, but they want to know that what they're purchasing is backed by good science and good physicians and other healthcare providers. So we have said, you know, this commitment to clinical data is really going to help propel a solution like this that's totally different. You know, when we talk about what we're doing, people just assume it's another lubricant or just assume it's a new flavor of hormones, for example. But this is so new, we really need this evidence to bring along the patients 
and also the providers because the product will yeah. be a prescription product. And so we want that partnership with provider and patient to feel confident about using the product. I have a question because I was doing my due diligence and I'm very interested to see how this is going to work. And, you know, I do see a swing in my practice where people are much more interested in at least non-hormonal options first, and then maybe they'll switch to something hormonal if, uh, if that's not working. But I happened to come across, you know, the clinical study that you're probably speaking of talking about a breakthrough device designation status from the FDA. Um, I've never heard of this, but this, but why would I? And I think this sounds really amazing. So can you talk a little about that? Sure. Thank you. I'd love to. Um, so that's a special program that FDA has created to help expedite exciting technologies to market. And I use, I think they've used that word expedite very carefully. So it doesn't lower the bar for what should be required to get FDA approval, but they're putting more resources towards products that they think are really important to help get them onto the market faster. And so the breakthrough status, you qualify for that if you're treating something that's either life-threatening or severely debilitating, and then also in a brand new way, in an innovative way. And so we thought we were a perfect fit for that. We know, having talked to patients, how debilitating this can be, and credit to FDA. I mean, it was a conversation with them I don't know that folks would have originally thought that that vaginal atrophy would qualify under this umbrella, but definitely, and I'm sure you've seen in your practice, really severe cases can be awful on a daily life, you know, problems with walking, wiping, you know, urinating, et cetera. And so that status was awarded to us in 2021. And, and like I said, it will help bring us um, more resources at FDA. And we've already seen that through some of our conversations. So we get um, kind of more senior leadership involvement. They're, you know, promoting that they'll be more, um, cool, more collaborative and flexible in some of the design. So I think it's really exciting. And frankly, I, you know, I love that we got it because I also kind of to the beginning of this conversation of just opening up the dialogue, like FDA has said vaginas matter. I mean, we all thought that we all knew that, but you know, here is an, a government bureaucracy saying it. It's like, it's a whole new world, folks. This should really yeah, great. That's a, a whole other reason to celebrate in and of itself. Exactly. Uh, one quick question. You know, since we're talking about enhancing blood flow, and again, just to go back, less estrogen means less blood flow to the vagina, means means less natural moisture uh, or transudate that uh, that or lubricant that the vagina makes. Um, since this is enhancing blood flow, or that's the presumed mechanism, and it's used externally. Are there other benefits that might be noted, like for vulva dryness, everything on the outside, or for any urinary complaints? Because after all, you know, all of these organs are kind of intertwined when it comes to less estrogen. Do you, did you incidentally see other benefits? That's a great question. So, um, yes and no. So we always want to be very clear about what we are doing. And we are very focused on dryness and atrophy. But to your point, it's not just the dryness, the tissue itself. And so that is what we've started to see um, through our clinical work is that over time, not only are we increasing lubrication, but that that is leading to improvements in the tissue health itself. Um, and so that, I guess, is an incidental benefit, so to speak. But we were hoping for that all along because we knew that would lead to more lasting benefits. I mean, you have to keep just like the hormones, you have to keep using the Medora product to maintain the benefit. Um, but what we've seen is really high compliance in our trials. So patients are happy to do that. 
With respect to the urinary side of things, um, you know, I think it's an interesting question and something we'd want to study in the future from a direct, you know, scientific mechanism of action. I would not expect that we'd have, you know, any benefit there. We're not, our energy is not applied there. It's really focused on the vaginal canal. Um, But to your point, that's another big unmet need. And so something that we would certainly want to potentially come up with other solutions to help with if ours didn't in the future also help with that. So here's today's hot flash. Those undergoing certain treatments for breast cancer, ovary cancer, and uterine cancer may find themselves in an instant menopause. So where are you in terms of uh, time to market, expected launch, obviously, um, I know with COVID that it took longer for a lot of the clinical studies. Um, you were doing some in Australia. Where are you? So if people who are listening and are saying, this is exactly for me, when can they get it? When can they, when should they be thinking about talking to their healthcare practitioner? Well, first they should call their favorite venture capitalists and tell them to call Medora. Um, That's but- a new, it's a new element in patient care. You right, call yeah. your favorite BC Dial first. Your venture okay. capitalist. Yeah. Um, so sadly, we are not on the market yet, but we're on our, well on our way. So we're a clinical stage. We have a clinical map of what we need to do to get through the FDA. Again, through this breakthrough status, we've had a great engagement with the agency. So we know exactly what we need to do. And it's really just a matter of executing that trial, which, as I'm sure you both know, takes all kinds of resources on, on all sides. That's why I was making the joke. Um so yeah, so that's where we are. But if folks want to, you know, stay in touch with us uh, on our website, I think you can join our mailing list, which we do not send much out. We're, but we once we open our U.S. trial, we'll, we will plan to send things out there. Um, and then we have uh, social media accounts as well. Share some of the, the, the handles and, and the address so that people can find it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Jump right so, in. Our website is Medora.com. So I like to say it's like Madonna, but with two R's instead of two N's. <laughs> Easy to remember. And then to be you, honest, see, you I, think at some point she'll be saying that my name is Madonna. It's like Medora, <laughs> but with two N's. <laughs> we will have really arrived at that point. Exactly. <laughs> um, I was like, Rachel, you're going to make fun of me. I'm terrible with social media. I think it's at Medora Medical for Twitter and Facebook um, and Instagram, I believe. So I have a question that you may not even be able to answer, but, you know, in my practice, uh, oftentimes people just are given medical advice and a prescription to go ahead, dust off their vibrator and use that to uh, to enhance blood flow because it is really like muscle massage or tissue massage and does enhance blood flow, especially for the faint of heart. They appreciate a prescription or doctor's orders for this. Um, and you can get that type of device fairly inexpensively now on your own. What do you suppose the cost of this device is going to be? Um, because that seems to really be an excess issue for lots of patients when it comes to things like fancy dilators or certain medications that are new, things that are new from the FDA. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think that's something that we've been razor focused on. And I will say credit to this Um your community of, of healthcare providers, that they're also thinking about that. I used to work in the cardiac space. All that's covered by insurance typically, but like the cost of the patient never once came up in a conversation with a physician. And so that's been a really refreshing kind of side of working in this space. Um, so 
our product, we intend to have an upfront cost for the device and then a monthly cost for the disposables. Our goal with this commitment to clinical evidence, though, is to develop reimbursement so that the product can be paid for by insurance and that the out-of-pocket spend, you know, would just be whatever your deductible is for your program, because we do think access is really important. Just like FDA clearance, reimbursement takes time as well. So typically, as you price, probably many of your podcast guests have talked about, when you launch a new product like this, you don't have reimbursement right away. You need to develop that over time. And so unfortunately, there is, well, I shouldn't say for baby, unfortunately, but for some, it's probably great. There's going to need to be like an out-of-pocket spend in the beginning. And that's something we were aware of when we started the company. But uh, kind of to your point, there's a lot of precedent around out-of-pocket spending in this category already. So as they, you brought up some great examples, over-the-counter stuff, sometimes insurance does cover hormone replacement therapy, but the out-of-pocket spending for to get you know the specific, you know, brand someone wants, or if they want to go compounded and get some specific formulation, they're spending anywhere from like oh, 50 yeah. to $250 out of pocket, right? Yeah, exactly. So absolutely. I mean, for dilators, uh, it's typically not covered, maybe, maybe on flex spending. Uh, some of the newer oral or systemic medications used for uh, dryness and painful sex are often not covered. And we always get pushed back to, uh, you know, some sort of uh, generic estrogen uh, used vaginally, but yeah, I, no, I just wondered, and it seems like if it's an FDA approved device, uh, it'll be a little bit easier to navigate. Definitely. And again, you know, reimbursement, it's, it's, it's similar to FDA, you know, it's really based on clinical evidence. And so that's been really our thesis from the beginning, but, you know, meeting the needs of all the stakeholders in the ecosystem so that we can really deliver the product ultimately to the patients who need it. And not all of them or sh none of them should have to pay out of pocket, right? And we can talk about how much Viagra is covered by insurance. So this is <laughs> a very similar That's thing. That's a whole nother podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the, what I think is your superpower is no matter what is going on in your professional and personal life, um, at least on the surface, you look unflappable. I think you told me once you were about to go into labor while you were doing a pitch, but I'm curious for people who are watching, um, you've been at this for, you know, eight or nine years. You're growing a company. You're you're building your family. What are some tips you give to people who it is hard, even if you don't make it look hard? Everybody knows it's hard. What are some tips for staying sane and just being so focused? You've always been so clear about what your end goal was. And I think perhaps that might be how you keep it all together. So what appears to be so effortlessly? Well, that's really kind. Thank you. And, you know, we have known each other for a while, so it's helpful to hear that from you. So thank you, because I does not feel that always on this side. Um, but I, let's see. I think, you know, to your point of staying focused, that's really critical, you know, thinking about, well, whoever I'm speaking to, I would talk about, you know, really what's what motivates you. And for me personally, and for the members of my team, I know this because we talk about it a lot. It's really about the patient and bringing this to them. I mean, um, I was fortunate enough to do a leadership fellowship program called the Fairland Fellowship um, two years ago. And one of the aspects of that program was helping you develop your personal brand. And really what that was, was uncovering the brand you have and just helping you articulate that, I think. And through that process, um, I were, you know, they gave me this phrase and I love it. It's that I'm an advocate in a lab coat. 
I'm someone who really cares about equal rights for all and, you know, really passionate about underserved and, and unmet needs. And this is my way as a biomedical engineer <laughs> to help advocate for the importance of vaginas everywhere. And I think that that's really freeing and, and helps me feel really inspired. So just, you know, piece one is staying tapped into to what inspires you. So three, it's patiently knowing that this is how I, I can help. And then I think the other side that's so hard to do is take care of yourself. <laughs> like it's so hard to do. I mean, you both, I'm sure have dealt with this as well. It's like very easy to put yourself last in your own family, in your work and everything. And so, I mean, just even on Friday, I was going through this, <laughs> just like having a low day and I was like, I'm working out and I'm showering. It's going to yeah. be a good day. You know, like the simplest thing that you know. Go crazy, take a right? shower. <laughs> I love that. But I also always have subscribed to the more you have to do, the more you get done. Uh, so it seems like you're making that look particularly easy. Uh, we are so excited to watch this come to life. Uh, it's going to be a game changer for my patients, I know. And, uh, I, I think, uh, more, more so than just the breast cancer population who surely, uh, was the impetus for this. But thank you for all of the work you're doing and we'll be watching. Well, thank you. Thank you both for creating a platform for companies like us to talk about what we're doing, help get the word out because, you know, it's great to be developing solutions, but ultimately it needs to connect with the providers and the patients who need them. So thanks for everything you're doing to help us. You bet. Thanks. Keep up the good work. We'll see you soon. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business. Oh,